Good morning, William, Neil, and everybody else that's online, and I appreciate everybody logging in and, and showing up for the first uh, webinar in the Ascendo Reliability webinar series this year. We're going to talk about the cost of poor reliability, uh, and I chose that title because there's a common frame out there that's called cost of poor quality or cost of unquality, and that gets written about quite often, yet oftentimes I find that the the cost of poor quality often manifests itself through field failures, through customers returning products or not buying products for a range of different reasons. And of course, that impacts us one way or the other. Now, many of you have heard me say this before, is that if it costs us money, <clears throat> if a product fails for a wide range of different reasons, and it costs us money, say a warranty cost or a product return or a lost sale, it's a reliability problem. And we can parse it and call it all kinds of different things within the organization. It could be quality, it could be design, it could be all kinds of different things. Yet at the end of the day, part of our role as reliability engineers is to make sure the product meets our customers' expectations. And that includes it's the right color, it's the right form, fit, and function, and it works over time. And it's not just that it, it works with, with what we think it should do. It should work with what the customer thinks it should do. And <clears throat> it expands our role quite a bit. Yet, we also need to know how to estimate poor reliability, the cost of poor reliability, and the impact it may have. And all of those things are part of our ability to influence an organization. Uh, in, and having a wide array of, of ways to do those estimates is a big part of what I wanted to talk about today. And hopefully that's why you signed on. And so we'll, we'll dive into the slides here. I think I've got everything going. All right. So I actually found this in, image as an old patent drawing uh, from the 1800s of a cigarette rolling machine. I thought it was a fascinating mechanical marvel. And I've actually seen a modern cigarette rolling machine in a factory in Africa that was not that dissimilar from this one, although much more sophisticated, much faster at what it did. Uh, the issue is, is that when something fails, say a machine like this, right, it or many of the other types of products or, or systems that we deal with, like bridges, we need to understand what's the impact. Not only that this part broke or this gear tooth fell off, but we need to understand that what's the impact on our production? What's the impact on our customer? What's the impact in general? And impact oftentimes, especially in the business world, uh, deals with money, and, and there's a handful of other ways to think about it also, but it almost always gets converted to money in one one form or another. And pardon all the beeps and chirps my computer is doing in the background, I'm not really sure what that's about. Um, so I have it heading to a headset, but today it's not doing that. <clears throat> so here's a question I ask, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is the question I ask graduate students, and of course I teach at University of Maryland. 
And it's a homework problem. And they, we go back and forth on this a number of times. But let me ask you, and we'll spend just a moment on it. Um, what is the largest source of expense when something isn't reliable? What is, what is the source of that? And in the chat window earlier, somebody mentioned uh, warranty, right? And that's often seen as a, a significant uh, expense of doing business, of things failing in the field and being returned. But what would you say is the largest source of the, these expenses? Well, that's a cause, William, you know, going too fast to market um, it, and not getting it all vetted out and having a problem. Um, but where would the expense be? Who's paying the biggest bill here? Yeah, and I've often heard, Mark, that testing doesn't always predict your warranty issues correctly. I mean, there's, there's a whole, and we've talked about testing before, and I probably should talk about it some more, is that we don't, we only can test for what we know we're looking for. And sometimes customers are experiencing something completely different. Uh, customer confidence. Yeah. So, Jonathan, you're hitting on the topic of the customer. If they lose faith in your product or they don't believe your product uh, is going to solve the problem for them, it doesn't work or it doesn't work well or it doesn't work long enough that they get their value out of it, they're not going to buy it. Furthermore, uh, they're going to uh, not tell other people to buy your product. They're not going to buy your next product. Um, you're losing sales. So it's, it's a little nebulous in some regards, but it happens. Um, recalls, yeah, they can be very, very expensive. Takata, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And it, as far as I know, it's still going on. Cars are still being retrofitted. Yet, I don't think that's the total cost. Use Takata as an example. What's the ultimate, what's the bigger cost uh, of the poor reliability of, say, of those airbag inflators? Now, if you don't get the right product, as William's alluding to here, you're not going to sell stuff, so not aligning to it. And that may or may not be directly a reliability issue. Uh, if it doesn't work well over time, then it's a reliability issue. Uh, or if it just fails. Uh, if field service calls, that can be very expensive. I agree, Peter. Goodwill, it's very difficult to rebuild. I agree. Oh, oh so Kathy, I, I imagine you're referring to Takata that they went out of business. I'm quite sure they did. <clears throat> right. Most of what we're putting in here, right, I, I think, um, Jonathan and John mentioned consumer confidence, which is back to the company. John mentioned consumer. What if somebody dies? Right? Those airbags actually kill people. Um, they don't create income anymore for their family or, or their loved ones. They don't contribute to society anymore. Um, one of those airbags may have killed the next uh, Steve Jobs in a new billion-dollar business. Um, we don't know. It's it's a yet society loses when a product doesn't work. Now it could be as simple as a three dollar uh, pen that I picked up at a at a bag full of pens at the store. One doesn't work anymore, but now I've lost that ink, the effort that went into building it, the the pen itself. I may have messed up a check and had to write a new check. Um, I don't know. Does anybody besides myself still write checks? 
um, it goes into the landfill, it may be there for a thousand years. We lose, in general, many, many different ways. Not, and the biggest expenses oftentimes are not back to us as a company. If something fails, you say in a factory, if you're making machine or equipment for a production line and your welding robot fails, it shuts the line down and they can't produce their product. They can't ship the next car. They can't do sales, which could be orders of magnitude more expensive than that one robot. So it's the biggest expenses often aren't to us, the folks manufacturing and shipping the product. Warranty and loss of brand and all those things are expensive. There's no doubt. Testing and design practices are all expensive. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yet customers, when they experience a failure, often bear a much larger expense than what we do. So let's expand this discussion a little bit into all of these different sources of reliability expense. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about a variety of different ones. First, really uh, looking at different stakeholders that are involved with um, when something doesn't work. So many of us on the line, and I recognize a good handful or a good number of you on the line, everybody welcome for being here. Uh, I've got Karen, Karen and Karina and Josh and Kenneth and Kirk and a bunch of others. I know many of you are engineers. And when we're working on a product or the engineering teams that we're supporting are working on designing and developing a product or creating a production line, when we have a failure, there's a two levels of impact in my mind. And there may be more. Let me know what you think. One is there's this notion of did I make a mistake? Did my calculations go wrong? Did I make a bad assumption? Um, is this going to impact my career? If it's going to, you know, in some organizations, unfortunately, if you do make a mistake and then you step up and solve it right away, um, you become the, the hero of the day and then you get promoted. I don't advocate that role because it, it leads to more failures. <clears throat> Let's design it right the first time um, and create reward systems for that in and of itself. But also we have <clears throat> impact to the program we're working on. If it's a serious failure and we have to redesign part of the product, it may delay the program. It may cast blame on you and it may actually cost you your bonus at the end of the, of the program. You may not get your product to market on time. It can be a personal setback or it could be a career setback. Uh, it could erode confidence in what you're doing. Um, likewise, though, it also is an opportunity to learn a lot and to, to grow a bunch and to improve the, your ability as an engineer, learning from those failures. Um, recently, I saw the Star Wars movie that came out, and I'm still struggling with how, to, how Yoda says his quote about uh, failure is a good, is a the greatest teacher is, I think it's something like that. Um, we can't get it right always the first time. That's why we go through various iterations and prototypes and so on. You know, and, and William, good point. You know, did I work with the right team to make this work? Did I get the right information? Did I have an understanding of what the customer actually wanted? 
And, and there's different ways of product life cycles and development programs to help us minimize this. Yet, the failure of a product at a very local level may mean that I get pulled off of <clears throat> I get pulled off of working on my next generation product to go fix a problem on our one that's already shipping. Now I've informally have done surveys over the years with with the directors of reliability or directors of engineering I should say and I've asked them how much of their engineering time is devoted to fixing mistakes on existing products not designing new products but addressing prior products and it it varies as you would imagine but it's roughly 25 percent of engineering talent in product development teams are diverted to fixing previous products not improving previous products but identifying field failures and addressing them and sometimes it's an emergency and sometimes it's you know uh, if we fix this, it's cost effective and we would reduce our warranty cost and help our customers. Yet, that's a lot of engineering time spent fixing problems. Now, we, we work very hard to identify and solve all of these engineering problems and reliability issues prior to shipment. And as many of you know, we don't catch them all. And Different organizations have different track records, but in general, it, we don't capture the engineering time spent redesigning something as a, a reliability cost. Yet in most organizations, it would swamp your warranty bills. It's a huge cost and it's very direct. If you can spend less time fixing past products, you have more time and more engineering resources to design newer and better products and cooler, fancier stuff. So think about how much time you spend and what's that cost to your organization. It's actually quite illuminating. So what other costs to the engineer? What else could happen that'll impact the engineering teams and the engineers themselves? What happens to your team when you get a, a product failure? me a chance to take a sip of coffee here. I've got a whole slew of questions like this coming up, so find your keyboards. Been listening to a podcast that's done by a, a, a host from Australia, and he says a whole heap, a whole lot. Apparently that's a phrase in, in Australia to mean a whole bunch or whole pile or whatever the, the lingo is. So I, I'll try to avoid saying a whole heap of stuff. Right. I did mention a good number of them here. And some of them are personal on your own career. And some of them are within your team and, and your ability to actually create a new product. Those are parts of it. At the organization level, Somebody already mentioned a recall, and, it, and, I, and having talked about the Takata uh, 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 air, air, airbag inflator issue, that was a huge recall. Recalls don't happen very often. Uh, some are silent, some we don't ever hear about. Some are, are promoted and broadcast, especially when they're related to safety issues. And, and some 
yet overall, from my experience, this an actual recall is actually very rare. Now they can be horribly expensive, yet it's because of its rarity, it's not really something we should plan for. Um, warranty by far is much more variable and much more close. Yeah. Ex yeah, exactly, Mark, is the, the, in the Intel stuff with their CPUs. Uh, and it's on and off over the years that, you know, different industries treat this all very differently. Now, one of the things I learned years ago is that warranty is actually um, is an order of magnitude similar to the investment we do for designing a product. So we may spend, say, 5% of our net revenue in product development costs and a whole bunch of more and sales and a whole bunch of materials and a whole bunch of production and shipping and, and all those other things that go into the cost of a product. Um, the design process is, is actually an expense of creating a product. And it's not atypical for it to be in the 5 to 10% range for a company that invests heavily into their product development. Uh, warrantyweek.com is an interesting newsletter. It comes, it's free and it comes out weekly. And it regularly tracks the publicly um, traded companies have to, in the US anyway, have to report their warranty expenses now and their warranty accruals. And they've been doing this for about a decade now. And, and Eric Arnhem at Warranty Week tracks that and reports on different parts of the industry and overall and things like that. And it's not uncommon for warranty bills to be in the 2 to 10% range, very common between 2 and 4% of net revenue. Now, that's on the order of magnitude of our engineering teams developing products. And I used to work with Hewlett Packard, and we did a inkjet printers, and there were 50 to 70 engineers on a new platform designing an inkjet printer. And we had all kinds of managers, and they had all this other stuff going on. And it was expensive. It was very expensive to design a new product. And it would take months and months and months to do it. The warranty cost at the time was about 3 to 4% of net revenue. And it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars overall for the company. And for a product line, it was very close to being one of the most expensive components of a product. We would spend months trying to take a nickel of cost out of a product with a dozen engineers working on it, whereas the warranty cost was more expensive than the CPU and the carriage and a handful and a good number of other subsystems of the product. But nobody was working on warranty until we started to recognize the, the impact it had on the organization. Now, the other part of that is the the variability of warranty. The One of the biggest things that I learned while looking at uh, across all these different product lines over the years is that for publicly traded companies and even private companies, we want to be predictable. We want to say, we're going to ship this product. It's going to have a 2% of net revenue is going to go to warranty because we here's the things we expect that it's going to uh, fail in the field and it's acceptable. It's not cost effective to fix those at this point. And then we get a 7% warranty bill the first six months. And there goes our profit. <clears throat> or vice versa. We're expecting it to have a 7% failure rate. 
in the field or 7% of net revenue and people love the product and it's not failing as we expected it to and now we have all this excess profit that we haven't invested correctly we haven't anticipated and planned for and so getting it right getting it predictable is also a cost to an organization right and a number of you have already mentioned the the costs of of brand loyalty, of uh, um, uh, confidence, consumer confidence, uh, the cost of, of acquiring a new customer, those kinds of things starts to blur the line between the cost to the organization, but also there's cost to the customer themselves. You know, they have to go find a new solution. They got to go buy something different. They need to do the research again to find a, a better product to solve their problem. Or I don't know if you've ever done this. Is you have a product fail and you're like, is it worth my time to call them and return this? Is it worth doing? <clears throat> do I need to go through and figure out how to do this or should I just throw it away and never buy their stuff again? Depending on the price point and depending on the importance of the particular product, of course, we're going to respond in different ways. Yet, it's that erosion that occurs to your overall product from the customer's point of view. It can be devastating. Um, ask your marketing guys what it costs to acquire a new customer versus an existing customer buying the next product. And usually that cost is significant. And I found it in product after product that a major influence in the repurchase, the customer loyalty, the customer satisfaction indexes, is the reliability of the product. Does it work? Did it work over time? Did it meet my needs for as long as I expected it to? And for products that do that, think, and again, I'll go back to Hewlett Packard, the, the calculators and the test and measurement equipment they made, laser printers, they could charge a premium for those products because customers just believe they would work. And they did. They they were fairly robust products, and I still have my HP calculator. Um, it's just indestructible. Um, although my three-year-old son years ago actually did destroy one of them. Um, it's amazing what uh, uh, the grip strength of a three-year-old toddler is. But anyway, they the idea here is that there's also costs to the customer themselves. What could some of those be? What other costs to a customer? And I mentioned a few of them earlier on. Yeah. How it, and, and then also, you're exactly right, Robert, is this one failed. I don't want the same one. I want one that works. And that's a challenge back to a company. And also, com many companies don't want to say, hey, yeah, that one was bad. Sorry, we made a mistake. Here's a good one. How do we know? How do we really know that? Yeah, and Peter, you're exactly right. There's service calls. We either pay for that directly. There's leasing programs, or they have their own maintenance programs and maintenance stuff. I just took my car in for servicing, right? Uh, there's costs with just the regular maintenance. Um, my tires wore out. Found out how expensive uh, mud and snow tires are uh, at the moment, and so I'm going to looking forward to paying that bill a little bit later today. But my tires wore out. They had close to 50,000 miles on it. 
Many of you would say, I probably should have replaced them sooner. You're probably right. They were getting close. Um, but now as the roads out here anyway are getting wet, which we do every six months or so, um, it's a little dangerous. So I, I actually need good tires. And uh, so it's, it's worth the expense. Um, yeah, the whole, the whole idea of the reverse logistics is a whole industry. There's a whole conference. I'm going to be speaking at a conference in March called Warranty Chain Management. It's going to be in San Diego this year. And it's like five to 700 folks get together in the warranty industry. Um, I usually go and do a tutorial that talks about how do you reduce your warranty costs. Uh, they're all talking about financial tricks and different contracts and different policies. And I'm saying, why don't you just make a better product? Um, you already have a lot of information. Let's make it better. How do you talk to your engineers and usually fill the room? It's a, it's a, it's a good pre presentation. Yeah, the, yeah, the Samsung uh, issue, it was an, another one I wanted to talk about, Robert, is, you know, it was a death knell to them as a company when the airplane said, hey, you can't bring that phone on the, on the airplanes anymore. Leave them at home. Um, the bad press and everything else. But imagine the customer that has their phone burn up. It's, it's lost productivity. Um, if I was running this webinar through my phone and it uh, uh, got disabled because there was the risk of the batteries uh, catching on fire, I wouldn't be able to do my webinar. Uh, there's lots of opportunity costs when you lose a tool out there like that. So there's, and there are ways uh, to do it right. There's the history of Dell computers early, or this 20 years ago plus, when their customer service was excellent. People had experienced a failure with, or a complaint with their product and ex worked with that Dell customer service team actually were more satisfied with their purchase afterwards. That's pretty rare anymore. It actually is a pretty big investment to make that work. So anyway, there's plenty of examples out there of impacts to customers. Everything from if your product fails and it kills them, that's pretty extreme. Luckily, it's fairly rare. It's much more common that you get bad word of mouth. Oh, that product doesn't work. Some industries are relatively small, like some medical device industry or products I've worked with. Um, there might only be five or six major customers that they deal with, these uh, products that are home service um, uh, medical devices. And they would be installed by these companies that would work with doctors, groups, and hospitals, and so on, to provide oxygen generating machines uh, in the home. And they had a whole range of different products. But there are only like five or six of these organizations out there, and they went they would stop stocking and offering products if, it, if they were having to roll a truck to replace it regularly. And because that's where their expense was. They would lease this stuff to customers, and it's by prescription and so on. It's a very small market, very expensive, uh, but the dealing with bad products was not something they tolerated. So it was an impact straight back uh, to them as a customer to having to deal with this stuff that's not working. So they would have to research and go find other solutions to offer, other ways to deliver on those prescriptions. 
So what other impacts <clears throat> can failure have? We talk about on the engineer, the engineering team, product life cycles, product delays, warranty, brand loyalty, impact to customers' production volumes, their ability to do a webinar, all kinds of other stuff. What else? What other impacts can a failure have? I've seen a couple of them in here. You know, Kathy, I'm going to... It's one of the solutions is to do, do more diligence. But you, you realize as well as I think many of us do is that our product life cycles are shortening. The rate of change of the types of technology that we're dealing with is changing. Customers' expectations continue to increase. Uh, the tolerance for lower liability is, is, is we're losing that tolerance. People expect it to work right away. They also want it less expensive. They want it now. All those other good things, right? We don't have the luxury of spending five years fully characterizing a new uh, polymer that we want to put on a shell of a product. We might get three months. How do we do all this and avoid these failures and mitigate these failures? Yeah, Robert, that's a good one. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm looking for is impact your economy. Right? If my factory producing this new product has a major problem and goes out of business, those people don't come to work anymore. And if I'm the big show in that town, that's a hit to the local economy. Yeah, product slips. If, yeah, exactly right, Ray. If we're doing the, uh, uh, we're providing those airbag inflators for auto industry and they can't get the airbags inflators, um, they, they're going to stop building cars. Um, little things like that can have huge impacts. What else? What other ways can products, a product failure have an impact? Um, we talked a lot about money, and, and I'm going to probably stay in that realm. Yeah. Uh, over or uh, out of stock or, or predictability of stocking type things and pricing of components and so on. Uh, if I've got a whole batch of failures, <clears throat> I, I remember years ago there was a, a group uh, that was making uh, electrolytic capacitors. Uh, there was a shortage worldwide of electrolytic capacitors. And a, a new company popped up that said, hey, we'll make them. And they made them very inexpensively. And about three months later, they discovered that they weren't quite making good capacitors. Um, and so these electrolytic capacitors, and we euphemistically call it venting, uh, would fail. They would burst open and spread electrolytic solution uh, all over your circuit board. Um, and if the capacitor itself didn't kill your product when it stopped working, the corrosion impact would shortly thereafter. And what happened was that there is a whole realm of how do you qualify a capacitor now? Up to that point, capacitors were seen as just strictly a, a commodity. And I suspect many of you think of capacitors as just a commodity, something that we use in lots of our products. It's an inexpensive, common little device that's found in all kinds of electronics, and they fail. And in this particular case, this new supplier came on the street, and Nobody really asked them for what's your reliability data. It was really driven by price being considered a commodity. 
and it caused tens of millions of failures because of the delayed nature of the impact. It would get into lots and lots of productions and lots and lots of machines, and it took two or three months for it to occur. And it was huge impact, not only to the manufacturers and to that supplier, it impacted the supply chain, that whole industry, because what does it mean to be able to provide a, a commodity that meets the lower threshold? New standards, new all kinds of stuff was done. There's lawsuits that locked up a lot of the information. But it also created this huge landfill mess. All of these machines are generally not repairable, and they were just trashed. And due to a three-cent capacitor, kind of ludicrous in, in one regard. Yeah, and you're right, Kathy, is, you know, it kicks off all of this root cause corrective action type stuff that we need to do is when we have failures. What could we be doing instead of root cause analysis? Now, don't get me wrong. I love root cause analysis. I love the process of finding out how things fail and fixing things. It, it's, I think it's one of the joys of reliability engineering. We get to go break things and then figure out why. Yet... We could be characterizing the environment. We could be understanding the customer's use profile. We could be working on design for reliability aspects that make a robust product right from the start. Instead, if we're spending half of our time sorting out field failures, we can spend that to learn a lot and move it into new products. Yet I've seen many organizations that that is overwhelming. Dealing with the field failures is becomes more than a full-time job and we have little time to actually learn from that and move it forward and avoid it in the future. And it can be done. It takes diligence and some discipline, but it's very expensive when we get into that kind of trap. So I'm going to talk about a few and, and we've mentioned a couple of these that are even bigger costs. So how much, how do you estimate the impact to your brand when somebody says on Yelp or wherever, I'm not buying that product again. I'm not buying brand X again. What is, how would you calculate that impact to your organization? Well, it's deadly, but put a number on it. I can say that to my management and they nod their heads and say yes and then don't give us any money to make a better product. What's the cost? What's the impact to us if the brand takes a hit like this? How would you estimate? Yeah, loss of turnover. You're, you're talking about product terms uh, of uh, inventory going out the door, I imagine. Okay. I think, Mark, you're going to win the fastest typist. Yep, lost sales. So, Don, how do you calculate if, if we get word that five customers say they're not going to buy our product again, and they do it on Yelp or they do it on a review site or do it wherever, and let's say we have thousands of customers, how do we estimate the cost of those lost sales? Yep. 
Okay, excellent. You, you're running down a whole list of things that those are the types of details that many of us can go find, right? So if somebody calls, there's a call, there's a cost per call to the organization. Somebody has to answer the phone, somebody's staff. There's some fixed costs and some variable costs there. A good uh, uh, um, partner in the finance group can help you figure out what the cost of this is. If a product gets a return authorization, there's a cost of that return. Right? It may take a little bit more digging to find, well, what's the cost of the root cause analysis or what's the cost of the uh, engineering redesign type things. Yet, if we're going to do a, what's the cost per a warranty claim? Oftentimes, it's two and a half times your retail price when you start adding up all of the impact that it has to you. But then it, it's on occasion we have a, a complaint or a lawsuit or whatever and it, it gets factored in. Again, recalls and, 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 and legal cases are hopefully relatively rare in your world. Uh, yet a finance guy can help you give you a net present value for many, many different kinds of things. Yeah, and, but it's go to your marketing sales guys. They know the cost to acquire a new customer. They're looking at all of their advertising and promotional material and going to conferences and, and all the things they do. Those are expenses. And then there's the number of new customers they get versus the cost to sell to a happy customer. It's been researched in, in industries after industry and in most places we have a, a, a go-to set of numbers for that kind of thing. And let's use that. What If we drop two points in our customer satisfaction index. What's, that's bad. Everybody nods their head and goes, that's bad. But if that's $18 million bad, well then if we propose a million dollar improvement to our product, a cost of a million dollars to make improvements to it, it doesn't sound so bad. Its return is $18 million or has a, a part of that that we could get back. But putting a number on it, is going to take some walking across the aisle to so to speak and go talk to those marketing guys and ask them what's the impact of it it's not sufficient in my opinion to say oh it's bad everybody agrees that when the brand is eroded or affected it's bad it's bad for business it's harder to sell things well how much harder right yeah and hold that it's i was looking for that quote is uh, when you're happy, you tell so many people. When you're unhappy, you tell a lot more. And I think that 23 is is probably underestimating the impact in some markets where uh, review sites uh, are a big player in the game. And credible negative reviews doesn't take too many of them to really uh, cause a problem for your product. Uh, other industries, we don't have the big review sites, but they are, other industries also have um, much smaller circles of customers, and they talk to each other. I'm thinking of medical devices in particular. Yeah, it is cheaper to keep customers happy to than to gain a new one. How much? And what if what percentage of that keeping part versus new is due to product reliability? What's, how's that fit into that equation? So that's something to think through and go sit down and have lunch with one of your marketing and sales folks and ask these kinds of questions and get some numbers 
and then tie it to well, how important is reliability to this? I was asking a, a sales director a couple months ago, how important is reliability? Oh, it's everything to our, our ability to sell products. Like 90%? If the product's not reliable, you can only sell 1 in 10 sales calls you do? Oh, no, it's not that bad. And, and we backed it off to the, the influence that the perception of reliability had on the ability to acquire a customer or to keep a customer and put numbers on it. And that was huge. It was in the revenue side, not the warranty side or cost of creating the product. So if we could double revenue, it's way better to do that in many cases than reducing warranty for the profitability of the organization. Now, I never thought as a reliability engineer, I'd be talking about brand and marketing and, and cost of sales and all that kind of stuff. That reliability plays a huge role in that in many, many different organizations. And, and yeah, dealing with avoiding bad news, mitigating bad news by having a reliable product um, is essentially very cost effective. Um, so it's Understanding those numbers, understanding those interactions is one way for us to create the influence we need to actually create reliable products. Now, another hit to this is to the industry in general. Right? Um, remember the, the uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon, I think it was, the oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico that uh, uh, collapsed and it burned and huge oil slick into the Gulf and all those problems it had. Um, it wasn't just the, I think it was BP, I forget which company it was, uh, had an issue. The whole industry had problems. They all had to review and redo their safety things. They had to re be much more cautious about getting uh, oil out of, the, out of deep water uh, applications. There was a whole lot more scrutiny from governments and regulators and safety organizations and consumers on their processes. Yeah, so it was BP. Uh, I didn't know they did a movie on that. And I'm sure there was plenty of opportunity there, uh, both on the you know, board of directors type uh, angst that was going on, plus the personal stories of people on the platform. But the, the idea here is that it was one company had a problem and had a major disaster and everybody takes the hit. And when an aircraft fails, or like a Boeing or, or an Airbus aircraft fails, for whatever reason, the industry loses sales. Not just that company, the whole industry. People step back and ask more questions and look at it closer and think about do they want to go there or not. Um, little things... In, in one part of your industry can impact your company's ability to sell. And so a failure can impact the you know, whole industry. And it varies, of course. And sometimes it's isolated to one company, and sometimes it's not. But when it goes across an entire industry, it's huge. Now, I live and work here in Silicon Valley, California, and there's tons of startups. For them, uh, this whole concept of uh, one of the more recent waves of new products is this uh, augmented reality and uh, virtual reality types of systems. One of the issues they're finding, and customers are complaining about the early adopters of these systems, is that 
uh, lag in the imagery you see in the helmets and on the eyepieces is slightly off with where your inner ear and your brain thinks it should be. And it creates nausea. It creates dizziness. Not a, an exact great way to experience a product. And so they're struggling across this industry to deal with that. But as more and more people experience these phenomena um, and the side effect of wearing these augmented helmets or virtual reality helmets, that it's impacting the ability for the industry to be accepted. Now, I would argue that's a probably a good thing until they sort out this issue that's causing problems for people. Um, I know that the five minutes I got to wear a helmet was, I was more fascinated by how cool it was and apparently wasn't um, moving all that much. So it wasn't, uh, I didn't have the opportunity to experience the side effect. But it's affecting the whole industry. Now, is that a reliability failure? It's not meeting my expectation. I went to put it on the spec sheet to start with, but it is a side effect that uh, is going to, if somebody can break through that and solve that problem, they're going to have a really gangbuster product, I think. Kind of an out there example. All right. Yeah, the internet definitely pushing the ability for companies, a single company's failure to impact not only their company, their entire brand, but also the entire industry. Um, not that I actually have seen an airbag inflator, and I have no idea which one's in my car. Um, I hope I never have to experience it actually working or not working. But um, I know about it now. I, I've heard about it. I, it's been part of my consciousness every time I get in my car. Um, it's probably affected my driving. I would say that. So the impact can go pretty, pretty broad. Now, impacting my driving was probably a good thing, so that's all right. Now, many of you are familiar with um, uh, Taguchi, and he has a whole uh, style or brand of, of design of experiment, experiments. But I think his more important work was the loss function. And it was the, the, the notion that if your product isn't right, if it doesn't work as it was expected to work and it works over time, it, it's an impact to society. And I mentioned this a couple of times in this part of this, but it's also very hard to quantify. Um, it's probably the more difficult one to quantify overall. But starting with the Taguchi loss function is one way to get that concept across in your organization and look for ways that you can quantify it. And some of the things that he talks about is that it's just the wasted resources. If our product doesn't work, all of those resources, all of those um, minerals and, and oils and, and, uh, and uh, rare earths and all of the different components and all of the factories and elements of that that contributed to making this particular product um, was a waste. It just got thrown away. It, got, it didn't get bought. It got scrapped. It, uh, whatever those things are, those all have real costs. If, if I don't need to make a factory that makes 120% of what we're going to sell, I have a 20% capacity left over. 
And I could recover much of that if I make a product that works, that doesn't have as high a scrap rate or doesn't have as much of a field failure problem. And I don't need as big a factory. I don't need as much equipment. I don't need to go through as much raw materials. And it puts a smaller demand on the world's resources and on your organization. And likewise, with opportunity costs, with the, where's our talent going, and, and a variety of these different things. And this expands quite dramatically if you get deeper into this concept of the loss function. And, and Taguchi was saying that you can calculate that for your product. You can create that parabola. Uh, the further you're away from it doing what it should do, the more it costs society. And I've not seen an organization actually run this calculations out. The concept has been in some of the better organizations I've worked with, and it was well understood. And in bits and pieces of it were, were characterized and, and calculated. Um, it was a guiding principle more often than a, an actual calculation. But uh, it's something to consider as you start looking for the impact of failures. There's obvious ones like warranty and failure rates. And then there's cost to your organization of spending time doing root cause analysis or redesigns or to your customers of lost production or lost capability or lost opportunity and then to your industry and to society in general. And keeping in mind that all of these add to the cost per failure. And I find it insufficient to just say, oh, we have a warranty cost, but we know that that's the tip of the iceberg is a common phrase I've heard. Well, how much of a tip? Is it a 2% of the actual overall cost or is it a 20% of the actual overall cost? That will help us change our decisions there. Yeah, and Ray, you're exactly right. This interest in corporate reliability or corporate responsibility and, and stewardship is a part of, I believe, this this Taguchi loss function. It's, it's to not only just do good, it's to do well with the resources that we have available. And I, it's more than just the reliability part. It's a, it is a piece of it, is get a good quality, reliable product out there, but also do it in an ethical, consistent way that minimizes our impact uh, on the world's resources. And so there's, there's bits and pieces of that in it. Yeah, and Robert, you're right. The FMEA and many of the tools that we use in reliability engineering can help us get a handle on, you know, what we need to do, where we got to go. Uh, I think the key, though, is, is that we need to quantify this information, right? But what we need to do at the end of the day is we need to create reliable, robust products. Now, just about everybody on this line, on this call, is involved in this objective. We're trying to do this. What I'm saying is you can arm yourself with the information about the impact of failure, more than just warranty, more than just scrap, of the overall impact and put it in real numbers for your industry, for your organization. Go talk to the finance people, to the marketing folks, and get hard numbers for your circumstance. Unfortunately, if Unfortunately, you have a recent disaster uh, that did a, uh, a major redesign of a product or a hold on shipping or a recall. You probably have 
access to real numbers that are fresh in people's minds. But go back and look at changes in warranty costs and changes in customer satisfaction and how do those relate. Um, it's a tenuous correlation in most cases, yet you can probably find it ones that are supported by anecdotal evidence and studies within your marketing organizations. Quantify it. Estimate the impact. We bring bad news to organizations and teams all the time. Hey, this thing's not going to work. This is going to fail. Here's how you can redesign it. Here's how we need to change this to, to make it work. And then we run into the pushback. Well, that's going to cost money. That's going to take time. Well, our counter offer is if you don't, it's going to cost us this much on warranty and brand loyalty and customer satisfaction and increase our risk of a recall by 3% or whatever the number is. If we have that quantification of the impact of failures, the ability to cost justify changes in designs starts to erode. We have the story, we have the evidence, we have the facts, and it becomes a very clear cost-benefit trade-off. But we need the numbers. We need to do those calculations. And then if you do have failures, if your grand, brand new wonderful invention just doesn't work and it fails in the field, well, what was the impact? What was the cost? How much engineering time did it take? How much loss of brand loyalty did it take? How much loss of other sales did it take? And if you have access to it and your market is available to you to, to discuss it, what was the impact to your industry? And write it down. Put the dollar sign in front of it, you know, or whatever your favorite currency is. The idea is it's a part of our ability to do our job, to understand and articulate the impact of failures. And so the cost of poor reliability is pretty expansive when you start breaking it down. And so what are you going to do? How are you going to get at this information and make a difference in your organization to minimize the impact of failures of your products? So in summary, we all know that failures occur. What we do is try to anticipate those and understand them, mitigate them, get rid of them. We try to do the due diligence to, to create products that are robust and reliable that meet our organization and our customers' expectations. And failures still occur. And our, our role with our, within our organizations at that point is to learn as much as we can and move forward. Let's make sure that we don't make that mistake again. And so that's the presentation today. Let me pull up the uh, where you can find the slides and all that good stuff. Uh, where'd that go? Conclusion. There you go. And um, there's a couple of links there for joining Ascendo Reliability. If you're not already members and getting our weekly update, I would um, advise you to do so. We got tons of good stuff there, and you get uh, one email a week that tells you what's new on the site and what's coming up. Uh, our podcast network. Uh, speaking of reliability, rooted in reliability, uh, the recordings of these webinars and uh, Dare to Know interviews with quality and thought leaders 
uh, we just went over 450,000 downloads, uh, over 300,000 downloads last year alone. And so the, the podcast network and the shows and downloads are just growing like gangbusters. And thanks to many of you for being regular listeners and sharing the, the, the shows with other people. We certainly appreciate that. The um, Ascendo Reliability has got a number of courses in the works that we're bringing online. We've got some books coming online this year. Um, look for lots of new exciting ways to get involved and to learn even more than these hourly or monthly hour-long webinars. Um, one in particular is next week I'm going to do a, a two-hour webinar on uh, estimating value estimating the value of the reliability tasks that we're proposing we do as we build reliability plans or have done and it's made a difference in quantifying that. Same basic messages today, but here it's more specific to the types of tasks that we do and don't do. It's a two-hour webinar. It costs $100, but we'll have plenty of time to go into depth and do lots of examples and answer all of your questions. And uh, since I'm charging for it, it'll be a much smaller group, so it should be very interactive. Uh, even more so than we typically do. So look forward to chatting with many of you uh, next week on uh, our uh, estimating uh, estimating value for reliability task uh, webinar. And so I'll stay on the line if there's any questions. I know we're right up against the hour, so many of you have your rest of your Tuesday to get to. Uh, Mark, over in the in uh, Copenhagen, if I remember right. I, oh, you're going to a conference in Copenhagen. Um, might be the end of the day for you, so enjoy your evening. And um, I'll hang out on the line here if there's any questions. But uh, let me go ahead and close out the recording.